Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Well, welcome to another Thursday episode of Fraudology. As always, I am so grateful to all of you who choose to listen to this. And it's my goal to give you information and news that will help you do your job better or help you understand the industry better. And so every week I'm like, okay, what do we need to talk about this week to help people? And there happened to be a few news stories that I found interesting this past week that I thought like you guys might also. So I'm going to talk about how the UK now has the highest card fraud in all of Europe by a lot and kind of why why people believe that that is, as well as the fact that the number of U.S. citizens holding crypto is now higher than those who have savings accounts. I found that fascinating and kind of wanted to dive into that a little bit more and what it might mean for e-commerce. And then lastly, I'll talk about how just this past week, Twitter revealed a vulnerability that resulted in a database of user information of about over 5 million accounts being sold and offered on the dark web for $30,000. So, you know, lots of fun and uplifting news and information. I did just want to highlight my conversation with my dear friend Robert Caps this past Tuesday. I hope you guys found that fascinating and interesting. It's a little bit different. Instead of me really asking him interview questions, we just pressed record and started talking and took a path that wasn't on the outline, but I think was really good and necessary and helpful. Just kind of talking about why we are where we're at and how to get through it and some good advice on that. And it did touch on a couple of the questions that we received from the audience. And we're going to go deep dive into really the importance of building a business case, some tips on how to do that to help your leadership and other departments understand just how critically important fraud prevention is right now, more than ever. And I think collectively, we as an industry have not done a great job at internal PR within companies. And so hopefully between Robert and I, we can give you some good tips. And this will be a topic that will be visited more over the next few months. I'm working on a project that should hopefully help with that as well. I mean, there's more than one way to do anything, but I just think that there is a need for more resources on that. And so I will be working on that both on the podcast and off, but Robert and I will kick off that conversation this coming Tuesday. Okay, so let's dive into some news, shall we? The first article that caught my attention is from Finextra, and I will be placing the links to all of these in the show notes in case you want to look up these articles yourselves. The first one, the title definitely caught my attention. UK is card fraud capital of Europe, it says in the past week. The article says that the UK has been crowned the card fraud capital of Europe with more victims and higher losses experienced than any of its 
continental peers. The data comes from analysis from the European Central Bank Statistical Data Warehouse, sourced from all reporting card payment scheme operators for 2019. The figures collated by the Social Market Foundation show the UK way out in front of its European neighbors in number of victims. So the UK has a total of 134 victims for every 1,000 inhabitants and losses, which are over 800 or 8,833 pounds per 1,000 people. So if we were to cut that down, it's about 88 pounds per person in the UK that loses money to card fraud every year. The value of fraud is more than 2,000 pounds higher in the UK than the second-ranked country, France, and contrasts sharply with Spain, Germany, and Italy by a far greater order of magnitude. According to the Crime Survey for England and Wales between April 2021 and March 2022, there were 2.3 million bank and card frauds, compromising 51% of the total reported frauds committed against residents during that period. That's crazy. The, it says the SMF, and I'm just trying to remind myself, the Social Market Foundation of the UK has called upon the government to adopt a comprehensive whole systems approach to address fraud, starting with recruiting more specialist staff that are trained to handle complex crime. There's a reason I kept reading this article. <laughs> if you are in the UK and you're a fraud specialist, I think this is talking to you. Richard Hyde, the SMF senior researcher, says that Britain's shocking record on card fraud compared to major European economies is yet another reminder of how UK law enforcement has failed to keep up with the epidemic. Policymakers need to reflect whether on uh, why we're at this stage. Solving this crisis will take more than just increased police staff. While specialist staff will certainly play a crucial role, the entire fraud and law enforcement landscape needs an overhaul with reforms that will transform the system and enact lasting change. There's no time to delay. Fraud and economic crime is evolving to be more difficult to investigate and solve. So policymakers must start to make comprehensive system changes now. So this article doesn't narrow it down as far as how that breakdown goes for card fraud. So this could be a lot of things. This could be credit card holders. So people who I think a lot of them are all the card holders, right? But their cards may be being used in other countries, probably the U.S. Because, I mean, don't worry, UK, you're still not number one in the world. Just on your continent. And I've talked about that before on my perspectives on the line. There's so much more card fraud in the U.S. than in the U.K. But I know, especially in the last two to three years, fraud in general in the U.K. has risen quite a bit. And their government has been really trying to at least get a hold of it. And there's been a lot of pleas to, to get it through. And, and they do seem to have more federal entities that are looking at different types of fraud. But and fraud can be so many different things, right? So they're also calculating merchants who have seen card fraud, from what I understand in this article, as well as other things. And it's card present as well as card not present. So this isn't just online, but it is just something to be aware of for any merchant who has a website in the UK. That is one thing to definitely be aware of, but also internationally, right, with bins from the UK. That does not mean that all of them are wrong at all, but just kind of file that away. If you see something that looks suspicious and it has a UK bin, it could be a tiny bit more likely for fraud. But I mean, really, it's just a sign of the times. I think we will continue to see articles like this in various governments and 
various regions throughout the world, unfortunately. I mean, I think that we are all doing the best we can, but I definitely agree that more can be done. Just thinking back to my conversation with Robert Capps and Eric Bowles about their time when they were at StubHub, they saw such a steep decrease in fraud attempts when they started to work with federal law enforcement to prosecute their biggest fraudsters and the biggest fraud rings. That is something that not enough companies do, in my opinion. We're playing a lot of whack-a-mole, and that is obviously saving money up front. But how sustainable is that, especially when, if we keep going with the analogy, the moles are getting smarter and more technologically advanced, oftentimes faster than we can, because fraudsters don't have to ask anyone for budget. They don't have to ask for budget from your company to steal from them. And they don't have to ask for budget to increase their bot power or all the other pieces in the puzzle and technology that they're relying on to be able to scale up a lot of these trends. So not trying to be doom and gloom, but I think it is important to be aware of reality. And that is one that I thought was worth mentioning today. Another interesting tidbit that I picked up, actually, this was in someone's post on LinkedIn, but I verified it. And that is that the number of U.S. citizens holding crypto has now surpassed the number of U.S. citizens with a savings account for the first time. It looks like this was starting to be tracked earlier this year, but I just thought it was really interesting. So the percentage of U.S. citizens that hold crypto right now is 24%. The percentage of U.S. citizens holding a savings account is 23%. That places a lot about the U.S. economy right there. And this brought up a few questions for me because there's been a lot more conversation lately about including crypto as a form of payment for online, for e-commerce, for mobile apps, etc. Obviously, if you're a marketplace in NFTs or other pieces of the puzzle you're already accepting or pieces within blockchain and in that whole piece of Web3 are probably already accepting it. But your standard e-commerce companies aren't. It's still mostly cards with some digital wallets mixed in and as well as buy now, pay later. So I very much remember when a group of merchants kind of were in this, not a race, but they were benefiting from press releases about adding Bitcoin as a payment method for their websites. I don't know if anyone else remembers this, but Overstock.com and Microsoft and a few gaming companies came out and announced that. And that was when I was working for the trade association. So I got to work pretty closely with those merchants when they had questions about it from each other and I introduced them to each other and often be involved in those conversations. And I, after a few months of them actually implementing it, I checked in because there were more merchants asking. Everybody else going to accept crypto? Because if so, then my bosses are going to want me to look into it. But if not, it's a waste of time. And really what I found out from those merchants is that they did not see a spike in new orders. I mean, certainly not to the sizes that e-commerce companies are accepting various buy now, pay later method, payment methods are seeing. A lot of times whenever a company adds a new payment message, a lot of thought goes into it. And the main goal is to be able to attract new customers or be able to meet your current customers in the way that they prefer to pay, hoping that they will increase their baskets or increase their order size, etc. And that is not what happened back then, but this was almost 10 years ago. This was 2013 to 2014, that era. I think most of those companies stopped around like 2015 accepting it for commerce. And so my thought in learning this, that 24% of U.S. citizens are holding crypto, that's surprising. I'm not 
part of that 24%? Maybe I should be. I don't know. I, well, <laughs> I do have a little bit of regret that I didn't purchase Bitcoin when I first learned about it back in 2012, because it would have vested quite well. But that kind of brings me back to my initial question here. So knowing that this many people in the U.S. are holding crypto, does that mean that more of them want to spend it online or are they holding it as a savings account? Are they holding it as an investment? Are they holding it because maybe it went down, but they're hoping it's going to go back up again? That would have been a different statement a few months ago, but I think we all know crypto winter is here, as Stephen Sargent would say, and values have gone down. So I think that's the multi-billion dollar question, right? Is crypto something that consumers see as investment or are they seeing it as a currency? That's been a question for at least a decade, but I think we're starting to get our answers now that more people have crypto in their possession. And I think that that will be interesting. There's also a fraud component, as always. That would also explain why there are so many phishing and social engineering attacks towards people who are holding crypto, or honestly, anyone. I'm getting some of them through WhatsApp and other texts and calls and others about my crypto wallet. I don't have a crypto wallet, but clearly they've just decided that there's so many people that do that they're going to blanket it. Also, all those auto dialers and spam callers and everything are getting cheaper and cheaper by the minute because of advancements in all kinds of technology. And so that's just another way that fraudsters are getting ahead of us. I don't know. I'd be interested to know if that's interesting to you guys. I know several of you are interested in crypto either as a new chapter for your career or within your company, especially luxury goods. It's only I've heard from a few companies recently. I know Tiffany's actually released a very expensive NFT. I read an interesting opinion article from someone who was like, well, they're allowed to price it at whatever they want to. And the people who are interested in it buy it. Well, it aren't, aren't. I believe that Tiffany's also has a physical item that you can only get if you purchase the NFT. So that's smart. And I know, like I said, I know there are other luxury companies that are considering it as well. And there are others as fast food companies are considering the metaverse or they've already set up in the metaverse and they're working out payments there. Or are we going to have payments there? And then, well, when we have payments there, what kind of fraud do we expect? And I was talking to a vendor recently, actually, that has done some work in the metaverse. And they were saying that they have found some luck with helping their clients, their merchant clients, provide not gaming the system, but oh my gosh, I just can't, it's not game theory. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. They're gamatizing is not the word. I'm now going to get texts with gamatizing. I'm like, I know. But they're trying to fight. Oh my gosh, it's a word and I know it, but it's it's been a crazy couple of weeks. So if I'm missing a couple of brain cells, that's probably why. But I think you guys get my point. They're working with merchants to tell their users because really it's supposed to be anonymous. So, hey, if you give us your email address, then you get this extra whatever it is. Depending on the company, it's, it's something different, right? So if it's a clothing company, if you give us your email address, we'll give you a free t-shirt in the metaverse for your avatar. Or you give us your phone number, we'll do this. Or you'll get extra point, you'll get five extra points somewhere else, or you'll get a discount in real life for 
kind of gamifying that a little bit so that merchants can get some of those identifiers to be able to verify identity. And I thought that that was fascinating. Wasn't really something I was planning on mentioning, but I think it is important. Oh my goodness, there's one thing I was actually going to share at the beginning of the episode. It's not a news story, but it's something that I learned this week that I didn't know before. And I shared it with some of the merchant or the retailers in my bi-weekly retailer call. Of course, summers, they aren't attended as much. We still have about 15, 20 people that attend twice a week as the highlight of my weeks. So we were, I kind of ran it past them and said, does anyone else know this? So I have a company that I work with sometimes who kind of reaches out to me for extra information on fraud trends and, and weird things that they see. And we have a retainer relationship, so they can just reach out to me whenever and Oh, sometimes I know the answer. Other times I have to go get it, but I know who knows it. And I'm really happy to support them in that way. And in this case, this past week, they were really confused because they saw one credit card being used with multiple names and addresses all over the U.S. But every time the card was used on their site, it came back with AVS, yes. So address verification service. It's primarily in the U.S., though there are other that have similar, but in the U.S. it is the numbers on your street address and zip code. Those go through the payment process to the bank because only numbers can go through the payment life cycle or the, oh my goodness, I'm losing all of my, my words today. I'm sorry, but the, the payment process through the Visa or MasterCard or Annex or Discover Clearinghouse and then to the issuer for authorization and back in milliseconds, all it processes is numbers. I know obviously if you are in and 3D Secure 2.0, that's going to be very different, but just as far as just processing each payment. And so the ABS is a way to have the bank say, yes, the numbers that you gave us for that cardholder are the ones that are on file. And I mean, over the last several years, I have not advised merchants to take ABS super seriously uh, for lots of reasons, primarily because actually a lot of companies for a while, well, several years ago, as Robert mentioned on Tuesday, 10 years ago, we were just in Excel spreadsheets, 10, 15 years ago, we were just in Excel spreadsheets and we were lucky if we could find someone to do a SQL query for us. And during that time, it was the same way where AVS was pretty reliable and there were a lot of gateways, especially that allowed merchants to just cancel any order that didn't have an AVS. Yes understand the thinking on that, but that resulted in massive amounts of false positives. I mean, I moved two months ago and I still haven't changed my address. Okay, I need to do that this week. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to get a bunch of crap in my inbox being like, really? You're part of the problem because whenever I order something online, my filling and shipping address is different. And part of the reason is because in order to win chargebacks, it used to be that it was ABS, yes, and filling and shipping were the same. And CBB, the last three digits on the back of the card, also matched what the bank had on file. That was how you want to charge back. Now, it's not as reliable, especially with all these changes coming in April 2023. I'm going to say it in every single episode. If you haven't listened to episode 110, please do. You need to know what is coming up in April. And I know April sounds like a long ways away. But with all that is being suggested that merchants do to prepare in the way that is being suggested, it's going to take several months. I know a few merchants that have tried it and it's taken eight to nine months. So go listen to that episode. It's very important for every online merchant to know those things and to you know, ask some of the questions. I'm, I'm skeptical of it, but I'm happy. 
Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. proven wrong. But anyway, okay, so I'm going down this rabbit hole. I should probably tell you where we're ending up. So what I learned this past week is I was able to reach out to the issuing bank by the bid number. The merchant noticed that at least in their system, in their bin lookup data, they saw it as a prepaid card. And so I contacted the issuer. They verified it was a prepaid card or is bid for prepaid. And I asked how they could be seeing multiple addresses with one card, all in different areas of West, but all getting EBS, yes. And the response was kind of, it was just new to me. I didn't realize it. They said that that is really the industry standard for all prepaids is just to always provide ABS yes. They said that the legacy response was ABS Z, which would mean that the zip code match. And that could be debated because merchants could take that as, oh, okay, this address is on file with the bank. So I feel a little bit more good about the order, right? If you're looking at an order and you see a few risky things that go together, but then a few things that you're not sure and you see that the bank, you know, the address matches the bank and, oh, they're shipping to that address. Oh, I might be inclined to say yes. But just know that if it is a prepaid bin, it more than likely says ABS match, but they don't actually have any addresses on file for the card. That's not true with all prepaid. Some of them they do have addresses for, but it sounds like either way, the industry decision has been to make it ABS for it. I asked the issuer if they've seen an impact on chargebacks that they've had to 
was because of the EVS response and it did not, if they have, it wasn't significant. So I thought that that was interesting to share. I try to put as much nuggets of information in this podcast in every episode. They're not always going to correlate with what the title says, but I know from a lot of you that listen to every episode that you appreciate that. It's not an intentional Easter egg, but I just try to give you as much info as possible and at least things to think about. So let's talk about the last news story of today. And that is at least the last news story that I'm told. I know that various stories are different for other people, but or what stories you care about are different for different people is what I to say. But so I did find this interesting and I do think that there will be an impact or could be an impact on online fraud. And I always think it's interesting to know what data is being breached. We saw a really big change in what data was being breached or what data hackers were targeting in data breaches or any kind of exploits of systems. We saw a huge change from 2013 and 14 to 15 and 16. It used to just be credit card numbers all day long, but a combination of things from PCI compliance going up and more and more companies tokenizing as well as, however, like the big online or the big credit card number breaches of 2014 or 13, actually. And I remember it for a certain reason, but probably can't tell that story until, I don't know, my, my novel or my death, but I don't know. There's just some things that I've been privy to with big companies that I never feel like I can share publicly, but I remember it was 2013. The Home Depot and Target breaches were the most, the biggest and the most well-known. And on those, I think it's always important to note that those credit card numbers didn't come from online transactions. They came from in-store and those terminals weren't, B wasn't there. It's a different time. Here are the reasons why credit card numbers weren't breached anymore, right? It's the fact that more merchants were tokenizing at least online transactions. EMV started and chip transactions are much harder. It's almost impossible to hack or gain access to in the purchase path. That's not entirely true, but it's true enough to where it makes it much more difficult. And then also the fact that really the people who bought all those credit card lists were sadly disappointed because once news got out about the breach, the credit card companies were able to cancel all those cards. I want to say it was not the episode with Frank McKenna or Gil Rosenthal where or no, 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 it was Robbie. That's right. It was. And I'm sorry, there are two Robbies in my head and I always get them confused. And Robbie Perry. That's right. I wanted to, I was going to say the other one. That's why I left Perry's episode from several months ago where he talked about being on the issuer side for City, for uh, Chase and for Capital One. And he talked about the target breach and how they made decisions not to reissue new cards when there were compromising information of a compromise. Instead, they would tune their algorithms on the issuing side so that if it was a transaction outside of scope for the data breach, then it would, or sorry, outside of scope of the customer's history and what they usually purchase, then they decline those transactions or when a card holder called, which again, I could go on a whole rabbit trail on that one, but we're just going to stop there because I still need to get to the story. Um, what I'm saying is after 2014, we saw what was being breached change. And that was account rich information. That was usernames and passwords because 
an open secret, not even a secret, that so many consumers reuse the same password. So that became important to steal, as well as names and address and emails. And then we saw the OPM hack in the West, which was anyone that's ever worked for the federal government, including the military. And so much was stolen, including fingerprints and psychological exams, but also social security numbers and all their contact information and enough to unfortunately commit a lot of identity theft as well as patchworking them together for synthetic IDs and synthetic profiles. So when we see the data being breached is changing, that often means that fraud is going to change too. Because when it was only stolen credit cards being breached, we were really focused on stolen credit card numbers and and credit card fraud. We're still focused on credit card fraud, but oftentimes it'll happen via account takeover because a username and password was revealed via a breach or just various scams that we've seen change over time. Synthetic ID, identity fraud, fake accounts, all these other pieces are because we saw what was being breached change. It's kind of like looking up the stream and go, okay, what's going to come our way? And so I kind of keep an eye on what information is being exploited or exposed to bad actors, even though almost always the people who are retrieving that information are packaging it up and selling it for someone else to monetize. But it does eventually hit our desk in some way or another if you are in online fraud, whether you're on the banking side or the e-commerce side or the fintech side, any of the sides. So the headline, let me pull that up so I can just read it for you quickly. Hackers exploit Twitter vulnerability to expose 5.4 million accounts. Just last week, Twitter revealed that a now patched zero day bug was used to link phone numbers and emails to user accounts on their platform. So basically as a result of the vulnerability, if someone submitted an email address or a phone number to Twitter's systems, the Twitter system would tell the person what Twitter account submitted the email address or phone number that it was associated with, if there was any. Obviously bots can be programmed to test that so then you can do it at scale, which is probably how you get to 5.4 million accounts in a fairly short period, but not that, not that short. Uh, so Twitter said that they were made aware of this exploit in January of 2022, which was seven months ago, stemmed from a code change introduced in June of 2021. They say that no passwords were exposed as a result of the incident. The six month delay in making the public stems from new evidence last month, which last month was just a couple of days ago, guys. I guess it was you know, almost two weeks now, but still that it uh, just seems like last month seems like so long ago. There was new evidence last month made public that an unidentified actor had potentially taken advantage of the flaw before the fix to scrape user information and sell it for profit on the breach forums. So although Twitter didn't reveal the exact number of impacted users, the forum post made by the threat actor, the person who stole this information and exploited it, shows that the flaw was exploited to compile a list containing allegedly over 5.48 million user account profiles. So Restore Privacy, which is the organization that disclosed this breach last month, uh, late in July, said that the database was being sold for $30,000. That probably means that they believe it can be monetized at least 10 times that, if not a lot more. And who's to say that that list isn't going to be sold to one group and then resold to others or broken up and sold in different ways and used in different ways. It's hard to know when that happens, what exactly is going to happen. It also could be a 
nation state actor. We see that sometimes with online messaging services. So whether that's email, whether that's messaging apps, whether that is social media, sometimes nation states will get involved because they want additional contact information for specific targets. That gets into weird espionage stuff, but you know, I talked a little bit about that with Matt Vega. I think the first time he stopped by last year because he did work for a national agency within the U.S. that has three letters. That's all I'm allowed to say publicly, but all he's allowed to say publicly as well. But we talked a little bit about the different types of fraud and digital issues he saw while he was at that agency. So I also know from conversations with other companies that have been targeted that this is often what's wanted. So it's hard to know what's going to happen with it. But the fact that this guy is selling that says that probably not the case or it was already siphoned through. But there's definitely some concerns that it took Twitter six months to acknowledge this and that they only acknowledged this when it came out public by another organization. I have to wonder if that goes against GDPR rules, CCPV rules, other rules around disclosing data breaches. I know that there are some specifics in there, so maybe this doesn't fall into it. But know that this isn't something new. This is something that's been out for six months. It's fixed now. But there are 5.4 million accounts from Twitter that now have the verified phone number and or email address attached to it, which you might ask what people could do with that, right? Like, why does it matter? Because it used to be when we heard about a breach and we heard it wasn't about credit card numbers. I guess I should say, because I think all of us on one conversation would say that, no, we, we knew this already, but a lot of other people didn't. They would hear on the news, there was a breach. Oh, it was just usernames and passwords. Okay, I'm good. Well, actually that can do so much more damage than just your credit card. And so sometimes you'll hear about breaches and won't know, okay, based on what was taken, what could happen with that? That's something that I have just found that I enjoy doing because I'm a really big fraud nerd and weirdo. But whenever I hear about a new business model or I hear about a new combination of PII that's been leaked or exposed or compromised, et cetera, whichever category it fits into the parameters, I often to think about, well, how could that be monetized? And so here's what I came up with, with the combination of knowing someone's confirmed Twitter handle and that as well as their corresponding email address or phone number. And obviously, if this person is a very active Twitter user, you might learn a lot about them by reading through their profile. Though, based on the number and the type of exploit this is, I'm 90% sure it was a scripted attack and not somebody going in one-on-one. -on -one. But whoever they sell it to may choose to do just some deep dives for identity theft. It's hard to know. I think the number one thing that worries me is one-time password spoofing or OTP bots. Because if they know what email address is attached to your Twitter account, then they can try to gain access and be able to verify that email and possibly get access to the email as well. Or they'll try to fish your email and then insert malware or get your email address or email password and credentials that way. But they have your phone number so they can send you a text and say, hey, this is whatever company and we're just wanting to verify that this is you. So we've sent you a six digit code, please give it to us. And of course they then enter it into the actual website. So that 
those OTPs moving can happen, being authenticated via Twitter. If Twitter allows people to go to other sites and just say, allow me to be authenticated, here's my information, that can be a danger. I think the biggest thing beyond the OTP, the one-time password spoofing, is going to be phishing and social engineering attempts via their phone and their email because they know more about them. So they can gain information on Twitter and then kind of know how to social engineer or phish them. Any more information that a phishers, especially the spear fishers, as they say, those who are targeting specific people, the more they know, the better. Uh, obviously, it's going to be concerning if they have your work email, right? You're not going to want to click on any links for a long time. But also as merchants that we know that whenever people are fished or, or social engineered, that it can absolutely trickle down to e-commerce because they have to find a way to monetize it. It also will probably trickle into these victim-assisted scams with gift cards and with withdrawing money and tra bank transfers via peer-to-peer -peer transfer services. It's a jungle out there. Other things I think could happen with this breach, geo attempts on Twitter, harassment of forum of famous or well-known users. I'm sure within a sample set of 5.4 or 6, I can't remember, but 5 point something, right around 5.5 million accounts, there will probably be a few people who have the blue check mark and who are verified. So might allow them to harass them more if they have their phone number or their email address, or they might want to sell that. And, you know, if you combine this with other stolen or public data on specific users, it could help these fraudsters create a more full profile for identity theft and other targeted attacks. I think it's always important to look upstream because you aren't always going to know what's going to happen downstream and you're kind of part of that process. You don't know what's coming. So knowing those things, knowing those out there, out there, I mean, 5.6 million accounts isn't as many as the entire country or the entire world. And it didn't say if these were international accounts or U.S. focused. I think I kind of assume they were U.S. focused because they mentioned the U.S. Justice Department in the article, but I, that is entirely, you know, not sure. But just to, if this is something that you think could impact your business directly, it's definitely something to be aware of. And that's what I try to provide is if I see something coming down the stream, so to speak, I want to let you guys know as soon as possible so that you can adjust your methods or at least be aware that something's going to happen. Maybe you're not seeing it now, but I hear from a lot of you and I absolutely love it when you say something to the effect of, you know, I listened to that episode on ATOs or chargebacks or whatever it is. And, you know, it was interesting. It didn't really apply to me. And then a few weeks later, I've got charge of the chargeback department. <laughs> we then saw that issue and I thought, oh, I wonder if this is what Greece was talking about. Refund fraud is another one that I hear a lot from people, especially some of those more advanced methods that are happening more often. But I always want to hear what you guys want to hear on these Thursday episodes, as well as who you want to hear and learn from on the interviews. So you can always reach out to me. I may not be able to reply to every LinkedIn message, but I sure try. And then I know that my team is actually organizing a survey soon. I'm going to be asking you to fill out very soon to help us understand how we can help you more. I am growing my team slightly on both Chargelytics and the podcast and wanting to offer more community and education opportunities for you guys. I hear it loud and clear that that's what's needed. And as much as I really enjoyed kind of being this hub of the industry, it's also equally important for you to all talk to each other in a controlled environment, whether that 
that is in-person events or a forum or others. And so we're just trying to get a little bit of direction as well as an email list for newsletters. I mean, we're kind of looking at all kinds of things. So you'll know more when you look at the survey because you all are very good at looking past the first layer of anything. So you will have some ideas of what we are considering, but we don't want to do anything without asking first. So with that, I'm going to end it for the week, but thank you again. Feel free to leave a five-star review or uh, a five-star rating or a review in iTunes or Spotify. I really appreciate it. It helps other people like you discover the podcast and it kind of makes my day when I go and look at them. Always feel free to share these episodes with your friends and colleagues. I really appreciate it. And I will look forward to speaking with you more next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.